Welcome to Deep Green, a bi-weekly show about how the built environment impacts climate change and equity. Deep Green is brought to you by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal. Buildings are some of the biggest things we make as human beings. So if you want to know how we can do better for the environment and all life on this planet, you have to understand buildings and cities and all the stuff that goes into them. And that's what we want to help you with here at Deep Green. This episode is one of two episodes brought to you in partnership with Aquafil, synthetic materials producer of Econil. In our last episode, we discussed the problems with recycling plastics. Here are some key takeaways. We don't recycle enough. Not all plastics are made equal when it comes to recycling. And while there are incredible breakthroughs in recycling processes, it might not always be the right answer if our goal is to reduce harm to the environment and human beings. So in today's episode, we're going to zoom out a bit. Our question today, can we redesign waste? We have two segments for you. In segment one, writer and advocate Katie Tregadin talks about what got her fascinated with waste and why she thinks the solution to the climate crisis lies at the intersection of waste, craft, and design. And then in segment two, we'll hear from Giulio Bonazzi, CEO of synthetic fibers and polymers producer Aquafil, about how his company is investing in waste. Segment one, trash to treasure. Waste is a complex issue. You know, how we generate waste, what kinds of chemicals and materials are in our garbage, where we choose to dispose of it, and who is affected the most by the trash we generate. All of these things make waste reduction and management extremely challenging. But one thing is clear. If we think of our trash as simply worthless and dirty, we've pretty much lost the battle against climate change before we even start. So maybe that's our starting point, our mindset about what we value and what we throw away. Our first guest today, Katie Tregadin, has spent a lot of time thinking about that question. She's the author of the book, Wasted, When Trash Becomes Treasure, She runs a masterclass on waste and is the host of the podcast Circular with Katie Tregadin. My name is Katie Tregadin. I'm a podcaster, author, journalist and keynote speaker specializing in craft design and sustainability. So Katie, tell us a little bit about your book, Wasted. How did you become interested in waste as a topic? So I've been writing about what I call purpose-driven craft and design for a about 10 years now, and always really interested in how craft and design could do good in some way. And about four years ago, I decided to get really serious about what I meant by purpose. And so I went to do a master's in history of design, really with the intention of interrogating that question, and came to the conclusion that the most pressing issue of our time is climate change and all the issues that intersect with that from social justice to biodiversity and realized that a fair transition to a circular economy was probably the best hope we've got of addressing that and realized that craft and design have a really big role to play in that. And so that became my definition of purpose. 
And the question that I sort of set myself during my master's was, can craft save the world? And that's a question that's been driving my work ever since from the book to the podcast. You know, I think that's really interesting because obviously we think of the climate crisis as essentially an industrial problem, you know, stemming out of this kind of economy of scale that we've tried to build, you know, mass producing and, you know, pulling resources out of the earth. And it's very interesting that you come at this looking at craft as a sort of framework for circularity. You know, most people, when they talk about the circular economy, they're really trying to go for scale. They're really trying to go for, you know, big waste streams and so on. And I love that you come at it through craft. So I'm going to ask you the question that you set out to ask in your master thesis. Is it true? Can craft save the world? I think it can, uh, not on its own. I, I don't think we're looking for a single silver bullet solution. I think there's a, a wonderful podcast called How to Save a Planet. And there's a quote in one of their episodes, which was what this is going to take is hundreds of thousands of people trying and failing and trying again. And I'm a big believer in that sort of approach. So I think craft is certainly part of the solution. And it's interesting you mentioned the climate crisis as an industrial problem because really since the industrial revolution we've adopted a linear take make waste economy we take things out of the earth we make stuff out of them we use those things and then they become waste and, and what we're looking for is a circular economy and actually most craft practices are inherently circular so not only do i think that craft and design are part of the solution but also i think the rest of us can learn a lot from craftspeople about the ways that they practice which are very much in line with the principles of the circular economy you know you were talking about the linear economy right and unfortunately that's where a lot of design still lives today most manufacturers and designers, when they design products, they still think that everything that they create is going to be used and treasured forever. It's going to become a part of people's lives and they're going to love it so much they're never going to throw it away. But there's this hard truth. People throw away more than they keep. I mean, this is true in the United States. It's true in Europe. It's true in Asia. It's true everywhere in the world. People throw away more than they keep. And so how should we shift the way we design learning from craft, learning from that circular approach that you've laid out, how should we shift the way we design so that we don't keep falling into the same trap of thinking that the things we make are never going to be thrown away? You're so right. And the amount of designers and makers I talk to who sort of say, oh, but my thing's sustainable because it's designed to last for hundreds of years and be passed around down through generations. And I'll always say, yeah, but then what happens? You know, after it's been passed down through generations and lasted for 100 years, then what happens to it? You know, maybe it's a thousand years, but then what happens to it? And I think that's the question that designer makers don't like to ask themselves, right? Because they've put their heart and soul into this object. Or if they're a big company, they've put a lot of money and time and effort and R&D into this object. It's sort of counterintuitive to think about what happens next, but actually 80% of the environmental impact of an object is determined at design stage. So it's super important that they do. And there's some really basic things they can do. So one is to think about how the object might be repaired if it gets broken. So does it have what Amy Trigger Holroyd describes as an open structure? Can people see how it works and understand how to fix it? Are you sharing plans? spare parts? Do you have some sort of take back scheme? So when somebody's finished with it, they can give it back to you so you can fix it and sell it again or take it apart and make it into a new one. And the other thing is about design for disassembly. So 
I think something like a quarter of the items that we put in our recycling bins actually get recycled. And that's often because there are multiple materials stuck together. And so separately, those materials could be recycled, but stuck together, they can't be. So if we think about the objects that we're designing, how do they come apart into their separate materials so that two different materials aren't stuck together? And the other thing is to avoid what they call heat beat treat. So in the making process, a lot of materials are transformed into something that's no longer recognizably animal, vegetable or mineral, you know, something that can't go back into the earth in a way that's beneficial. And so if we can make without using those processes and only using processes that leave the materials as materials that can biodegrade, then all of that can help that end of life problem. I think you've laid out so many great examples of, you know, how we can address waste through design at the start of the life of a product or material. I love that stat, 80% of a product's environmental footprint is decided, you know, during design. That is really powerful. Recently, I was at a furniture trade show here in the United States, in Chicago, and I was absolutely excited because I saw a chair that had been made using no glues. It was all screwed together, so it could just be screwed apart at the end of its life. And a lot of people maybe don't find that exciting, but it just, that tickled me. Like, I just loved that. I thought that was such a huge breakthrough because we don't realize how many objects in our homes are glued together, fused together, melted together, right? And then can't be prized, like those materials can't be prized apart again. They have to be burned together or they go into a landfill together. They're kind of, you know, now melted together forever. And in many cases with plastics, that's thousands and thousands and thousands of years, you know, and so we're dooming ourselves when we don't design for disassembly. So I think that's absolutely, absolutely vital. Let's talk about what happens to products at the end of their life and what we can learn from craft on that front. Because as we've acknowledged now, most things get thrown away at some point, right? <laughs> Whether it's now or two generations from now or a thousand years from now. Often we've made those things without a care to the chemicals that have gone into them. And then now we have to deal with them when they're sitting in a landfill. And in the United States, at least, it's true that the communities that live close to or by landfills, you know, are generally have, you know, issues. I mean, they they are they are underprivileged, they are vulnerable in different ways, whether it's economically or socially. So there's there's rippling effects. It's not just that these materials are poisonous, but they're poisonous to sometimes the most vulnerable populations in our cities. And so it's a huge issue. How do we think about that kind of poisonous, frankly, toxic waste? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that you, you mentioned where those places are. And there's a there's the statistic that shows that in America, the sort of power plants that are producing pollution are disproportionately located in black neighborhoods. And so, you know, this is where racism intersects with environmentalism. And so I think it's really important that we sort of look at all these problems as a whole. And it's the reason they call this a wicked problem, right? Because there's no simple solution and and things like poverty and race are absolutely intersecting with environmentalism. So thank you for mentioning that because I think it's really important. I do think it's a bit of a myth though that all waste is toxic. There's a great quote by Brian Thill who says that waste is every object plus time. And, and to your point that everything eventually gets thrown away, everything currently surrounding me one day is going to become waste. So it's not all toxic. A lot of it is 
just perfectly normal materials. And there's a in my book, I talk about this idea that waste is a category, not a fact. And so there's a moment at which we decide something is no longer useful or fashionable or it doesn't fit us anymore or it's become stained or broken or ugly or whatever it is. And so we recategorize it as waste. While I was researching the book, I had a really interesting example of this, which is a bit it's a bit silly, but I, I will share it with you because I think it makes the point really well. So I was having baked beans on toast for my lunch, which is, I would imagine, a fairly classic British lunch. And so I was eating it, right? Clearly, I'm happy that this is food and it's edible and I'm quite happy. Five minutes later, I'm scraping some leftovers into the bin and I got a little bit on my finger. And my reaction was to go, Ugh, because this thing on my finger was waste. It wasn't food anymore. And like five minutes before, I'd been putting it in my mouth. But now it was on its way into the bin, all of a sudden it disgusted me. And I just think it's so interesting that, and in the book I go through this series of boundaries that things cross and get recategorized as waste. And I think the thing is we can bring things back from those boundaries. What tends to happen is that waste all gets mixed in together. And so the dirty, toxic stuff is in amongst the clean, usable stuff. And then it becomes problematic. And as you say, starts causing problems for, for its neighbors and what have you. But I think one of the things that's really interesting about this new wave of designer makers using waste as a raw material is it's giving value to that waste. And once that waste becomes valuable or once people understand its value, it's worth sorting. You know, people will put the investment into separating out the valuable things from the things that aren't so valuable. And at that point, we don't get this big mishmash of kind of toxic, dirty waste mixed in with the stuff that's perfectly reusable. So I think it's another role that I think craft and design can play is giving new value to what was previously recategorized as waste. And actually, most of the designer makers I interviewed for the book really struggled with the word waste. They were like, can we stop calling it waste? It's not. It's just a second life material or a third life material rather than a raw material. And I thought that was a really interesting distinction. Can you give us an example or two from the book where people have been able to sort of recategorize waste and approach it as, you know, a, a raw material, a second life material, as you said? Yeah, so there's a project called Common Sands, which is a, a play on Common Sense by Studio Plastique, who are based in Belgium. And they found that glass is endlessly recyclable. It's a super recyclable material and there shouldn't be anything stopping it from being recycled. But when it's embedded in electrical goods, so if you think of the window of your washing machine or the little bit on the side of the kettle where you can see how much water is or the window of a, an oven or a microwave, it's too expensive to disassemble. And so it tends not to get recycled. It tends to get dumped with e-waste. And even though there are laws and directives saying this stuff has to be recyclable, if, if the value of it doesn't make it worth doing, then the, the market isn't going to sort of be there for it. So they found a way of rescuing this glass and then recycling it just in the way you would normally recycle glass. And they made a, a series of beautiful hand-blown tableware vessels, some beautiful coat hooks, all of which were super high value. And they etched onto them the longitude and latitude of where the waste was found to give it a narrative and a history and therefore created something that had enough value to make it worth disassembling those electrical goods. 
So that I thought was a really interesting example. There's another example, which is a collection called Exploring Eden, which was a collaboration between a British furniture designer called Bethan Gray and a surfaces company called Nature Squared. And they used the waste products from food production, so things like shells and feathers, and embedded them into an eco-resin to make super high-end, beautiful furniture and home accessories. But what's lovely about that project is that money all got reinvested into environmental stewardship projects. So for example, where they were buying shells from fishermen, that money got reinvested into more environmentally friendly nets that don't shed microplastics into the ocean. So there's some really lovely examples actually of the additional good that can come from some of these projects when they're thought about holistically and when the communities that the waste is coming from are brought into that conversation. I love both those stories. And I think a real effort in both of them to not hide the fact that the materials had a previous life, but to celebrate it, to connect with it. And then in the case of the fishing nets example that you gave, to use that story to drive further good in the world. And I think that's really interesting. And it's almost a cultural shift. As you were saying, you know, you were talking about recategorizing waste. Those are sort of attitudinal shifts, they're cultural shifts, they're they're shifts in mindset. And for so long, we've come at recycling and waste as a sort of logistics or mechanical problem or a industrial process problem. How can we turn this plastic back into plastic for as little money as possible kind of question? But what you're suggesting is something entirely different, right? It's it's really approaching old materials or materials with a previous life with this sense of value for them. And this was fairly common in pre-modern societies. Scrap cloth got turned into quilts, for example, very famously. Food scraps were turned into compost. I think there's a way in which pre-modern life was inherently circular and some of that lives on in craft traditions around the world. What will it take for us to shift back to a little bit of that thinking? What will it take for us to, you know, stop obsessing over the new and shiny as much as we do in design today or all of us do in our lives today? I mean, there is, I want to acknowledge, a a huge vintage movement, a huge movement for secondhand fashion. There seem to be these cultural trends bubbling up. Do you think they all add up to a a different societal approach to wastefulness and consumption? Do you feel like design can help that along in some way? Yeah, and I think you're right when you sort of frame this as a, as a cultural shift. And I think if we look at the reasons that we moved away from some of those practices, it, it can help to understand what the challenges are to moving back. And I think often those practices were adopted out of need, out of poverty, out of scarcity, out of lack. You look at Boro and Sashiko in Japan, those sort of stitching together of tiny bits of fabric were done because of a a lack of fabric and a lack of wealth. If, If you look at the North American quilting tradition, same thing. My grandparents' generation and my sort of parents' generation just about remember Make Do and Mend in the Second World War, which was in Britain, which was driven by a lack of resources and a need to repurpose those resources towards the war effort. And I think a lot of those practices have been shed as soon as they were no longer necessary. 
and this sort of veneration of newness came about in the early 20th century and in the post-war era as a signifier of wealth, right, and of abundance. And I think it's really important that we don't shame people for that. If you look at the sort of box fresh trainers or the unboxing videos you get on YouTube or the baseball caps with the sizing stickers still on them, they're an important part of, of various cultures that are signifying wealth and success and a move away from times of hardship and times of oppression. So I, I think it's super important that we don't sort of cast shade on, on those movements, but, and... <laughs> We need to see a, a, a shift away from signifiers of wealth towards signifiers of care. Kate Fletcher talks about something called the craft of use. So she has this beautiful image in one of her books about clothes just being a blank canvas when you buy them or when they're on the catwalk. And it's only when you get the creases in the elbows and in the hips that they become full of life and they become patterned and they sort of adopt stories and I think what can be really interesting about things made from waste or as you say secondhand vintage furniture or clothes is they've got stories you know they have I've got a, a G-Plan coffee table that I bought in a charity shop that's got coffee rings all the way around where the varnish has just come off in the heat of the coffee cups and I've got a friend who's a furniture restorer and he was like oh do you want me to polish those out and I said god no that's like decades of you know tears and laughter and arguments and love stories and you know every time I sit down at that table I think gosh I wonder who that that cup of coffee was and to some people it looks tatty you know it's not it's not a perfect piece of vintage furniture it's not in perfect condition it didn't cost me very much money as a result but I love the stories that that these objects can either inherit over time or be imbued with, you know, like the common sands example with the longitude and latitude. And I think that's something that people are starting to become more interested in. But I think we've got to be a little bit aware that that comes with some privilege. You know, there's the there's the whole visible mending movement where people wear clothes that have been visible mended. That's not accessible to everybody. If you have to wear a uniform to work, you know, that's not open to you. If you're someone who is sort of got memories of poverty within your generation or the previous generation that might not be something you feel comfortable with so I think the million dollar question is how do we get this stuff to go mainstream I think that has to be done in a way that sort of doesn't shame people who don't feel comfortable with this sort of expression of age or mending or wear or it's not comfortable for everybody yet and I, I hope there comes a time when it is but I think the way that we will move forward. I, I'm really, really anti-eco-shaming. I don't think it helps everybody. I think it's unkind and unfair, and I don't think it actually changes behaviour. So it's a nuanced, complex... I actually wrote my whole dissertation on this subject, so I could talk for hours, but there's a, there's a lot of nuance and, and complexity in there. That is just fascinating, and I think a really important lesson in there for anybody who's interested in the climate change movement what might look to you like obstinacy or just an unwillingness to change might be rooted in people's life experiences, right, that you don't understand or don't have access to. So it's it's always important to move forward with, with kindness and openness. And yes, shaming everyone never did any good. Is there a craft process or a way of treating waste or even just a waste stream or something that you've been 
you've come across recently, you're reading about, you're obsessed with at the moment. Are there stories or materials that you're absolutely in love with right now? I'd love to hear. Do you know, I mean, hundreds, there's so much stuff. I'm, and I'm one of those people, I read a lot and I listen to a lot of podcasts and I'm constantly talking to designers. But I, th- I think the thing I'm really interested in, because I'm not a designer, so I'm not sort of hands-on fingers in the material. I'm at sort of one step removed. And one of the things I do is I run a masterclass for designer makers who are interested in using waste for the first time. And what I'm really interested in is is that transformation. So when students sign up for my masterclass, they tend to be feeling the weight of sustainability on their shoulders. They've all had that stat that 80% of the environmental impact of an object is determined at design stage. And so they feel guilty and they feel this sense of duty and they feel that eco shame. And and you can't create from that place. That's not a place you're going to come up with innovative solutions. And so what I try to do through my masterclass, but also through my books and my podcast and my journalism is to move them out from underneath that heavy weight and, and into a place of curiosity and creativity and collaboration and experimentation where they can get excited about the possibilities. And I think there are so many creative possibilities when working with repair techniques or working with waste. I think that transformation is what I'm interested in rather than any individual sort of transformation from waste to, to object. Yeah, a transformation of minds rather than a transformation of material. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. And for everyone listening, I do hope you will take a look at Katie's book, Wasted When Trash Becomes Treasure. And also Katie hosts an amazing podcast, which is Circular with Katie Tregadin, available wherever you get your podcasts. So I do hope you will listen, follow her. Katie, it's such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. If you want to hear more from Katie, her podcast is called Circular with Katie Tregadin. Stay tuned with us for part two on waste. Today, we're asking the question, can we redesign waste? And here's segment two. It's clear. Our industrial waste problem needs an industrial scale solution. But it's not always easy for manufacturers to start incorporating waste or recycled materials in their production processes. Synthetic fibers producer Aquafil took a big step in that direction about a decade ago with Econil, which is a regenerated nylon coming from old carpets and other waste. In fact, Econil is made from nylon recovered from a variety of sources, including discarded fishing nets, carpet flooring, and industrial plastics. But accessing those waste streams, ensuring the quality of the materials that comes through those streams, and securing a steady enough source to power production at a large scale. All of those things have been, and continue to be, 10 years down the road, enormous challenges. Here's Aquafil CEO Giulio Bonazzi on how and why he continues to fight that good fight. I am Giulio Bonazzi, and I am the chairman and CEO of Aquafil. So Giulio, Aquafil, you touch on so many design industries. When we talk about those industries, particularly interiors and fashion, what are some of the big problems to tackle when it comes to waste? Well, let's start saying that all what we are doing today is unfortunately always somehow wrong. Maybe sometimes less bad, but always 
bad. And if we want to tackle the problem of waste, we have to completely rethink the way we use raw materials and we make products also in the interior in the fashion business. And if you ask me, I would begin from materials we are using and the way we use them. At Aquafield, we invented Econil, which is a nylon that comes entirely from waste. So no oil, no new resources and can be infinitely recyclable. And this is really revolutionary. If you think that on top is also having 90% less CO2 emissions and doesn't give any limitation to designers. How are you addressing waste within your manufacturing processes at Aquafil? If we want to, for example, stop landfilling, we have to think circular and recovering the raw materials after using or after having used products. And to do this, let's bear in mind that material matter. Econi Nylon can create systems to produce with zero waste, both pre-consumer, that means during manufacturing, and of course, post-use. And this is, of course, very important. So we at Aquafil, we don't create any waste. We recover all the waste we are making. And we try also to collaborate with our clients in order to make products that are more easily recyclable. Especially when we talk about synthetic materials, right? So especially non-biodegradable materials like nylon. You just spoke about landfills. One of the big issues is that those materials end up in the landfill and they don't, they don't degrade. How are you working to close the loop? What is your process of procuring waste, nylon, in order to turn it into aquifer fibers? Well, when you deal with Econil, which is our uh, nylon fiber and polymer, starting from waste, the first problem is to understand where to find waste, which, I mean, I know that sounds a little bit strange because the world is plenty of waste, but actually we need to find nylon waste. We need to understand where products end their life and then organizing a proper reverse logistic. And this is actually just the beginning. Also, because as you can imagine, nobody wants to have back waste. You know, everybody wants to send waste <laughs> somewhere else, you know. So in our case, the fact that clearly we can collaborate with the customers and also finally, since last December, we have also even acquired the carpet collection system from a supplier of us. We are aiming at being fully integrated because clearly waste procurement is the first problem if you want to use waste to make products. I think it's really interesting that you acquired a company to fully vertically integrate, not on creating new product, but on recovering waste. That is such an important part. So clearly this process of recovering waste and turning it into new materials makes economic sense for Aquafil. How does that work, Julio? Actually, when we started, we were losing money other than making money because when you develop a process that are so innovative, and you deal with waste and not with intermediates or chemical products that are made under very strict specifications. I mean, every track of waste is different than the other one. So you have to be prepared that you take time before having your system working regularly and delivering according to the original planning. And this is what actually happened also by Aquafil. But I mean, tackling problem by problem one step at a time, if you have uh, the right people, as I'm lucky to have, at the end of the day, you are able also to turn something difficult, like turning waste into beautiful products, into something profitable. So not only better for customers and for final consumer, but also more profitable. 
Deep Green is produced by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal. The podcast is edited by Hannah Vidi with support from Lauren Volker. Today's episode was produced in partnership with Aquafil. A big thank you to today's guests and to all the folks at Sandow Design Group who support Deep Green. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks with another episode of Deep Green available wherever you get your podcasts.